in this stuff, uh, the big other, so on, and uh, then, uh, and then we can well, start with the deep problem. So I think we stopped with the variation of those two, I mean, uh, uh, two faces, as it were, sorry, of the big other, uh, big other as the secret. Secret big other, more in theological sense, which uh, controls and so on, thinks the big other which runs the show, and big other not as a secret master, but as an agency of surface, that innocent gaze for whom appearances should be maintained. And again, as I emphasize, I think that. It's much more subversive to undermine appearances. For example, maybe you know this story, but it's a favorite one so far. You and What's my idea to make better? This is a nice example of how to sustain yourself. You need another sucker, as it were, to believe for you. Here I had a nice debate long ago with some theologists who of course, they were not convinced, but I still insist on it that when people say, oh, we have an innate tendency to believe, no, we need someone to believe, even if it's to believe for us. Uh, 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 I, I wanted to mention, namely, Roberto Benigni, you saw Life is Beautiful, no? I hate the movie, although I agree with the principle which is, and in these crazy times when people are losing sense of irony, when I said that it's deeply significant that the only good film about Holocaust that you can make is a comedy, I was, as you can imagine, accused of, oh, you're making fun of us, uh, uh, tragedy, and so on. No, my point is, on the contrary, that uh, it's an obscenity. It would have been, for two reasons, an obscenity to make a Holocaust story into a tragedy. Why? Because, and that's a very fine point made already by Lacan, for you to play the role of a tragic subject, a certain two conditions have to be met. A, a certain minimal dignity, you know, which, let's say, I'm tortured, or at least terrorized under a court, but I'm still in a position to do that, oh, shoot it, I better die than to, than to submit. You know, this kind of heroic pose, but, you know, in Auschwitz and so on, things were so terrifying that you were simply deprived of this very space. You couldn't play a hero in Auschwitz. The conditions were so horrible that to render the absurd of it, the only way it's a comedy. Again, you got my point. If you, if you were to portray, let's say, a heroic confrontation between a resisting Jew and the usual bad SS officer in Auschwitz, you would be way too kind towards the Nazis. Because uh, uh, precisely the guy who likes to be ill when he should have come here, George Agamben, no? Uh, he developed this nice in his book, uh, 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 What Remains of Auschwitz, or what, no? How, uh, you know, 
the so-called Muslims, the living dead in Auschwitz. This is the product of Auschwitz. You know what he calls Muslims, and it's a wonderful irony, because mostly they were truth, you know. In, and it's also a wonderful example of a subject supposed to believe. In, namely, in Auschwitz and at some other camps, uh, there were, you know who explained it to me, I'm sorry if you know the story, Agnes Heller, who was a pupil of George Lukács, the great Hungarian Marxist, who is a little bit over uh, old-fashioned, half-forgotten today, but there are people who knew him. I mean, he died in the 60s, his big era was the early 20s. But he was this kind of a wonderful person, at the same time a radical leftist communist, but as to his subjective attitude, this, you know, the middle European intellectual at his best. And he was personally absolutely honest, and so on. For example, although he was at some point almost officially party philosopher, in 56, you know, when there was the dissident anti-communist rebellion in Prague, he joined Imre Nach, the government, he was there even a minister for culture, and he risked his life because later he was uh, of course, like all others, arrested by Soviet police, and, they, and this is the first wonderful story. Uh, I knew a biographer of him from Hungary who uh, met him and knew him very well, and he told that when Russian KGB agents come, when rebellion was squashed in Budapest, to arrest him, they, is this a wonderful naive gesture? They ask him, please, give us any weapons that you have. You know what he did? He took his pen, that's the only weapon I have. And it's so naively, beautifully European, you know. And so, uh, and he was so honest. I heard this means that when, uh, then later, they didn't shoot him when they made a trial against Imre Nach and other leading rebels or whatever, because they, they of course, Soviet Union secret police was listening, taping their phone conversations. And they learned from them that Lukács was the leftist line within dissident government, that he often argued, let's not abandon socialism, we just want a more open socialism, let's not drop out of Warsaw and so on. So they told him, listen, this is not Stalinism, Russians. We don't want you to lie, we knew from our transcriptions of your phones, what your position was there. We just want you to say that, you know, the truth. But he's, he's wonderful. He said, if you uh, release Imre Nach, the prime minister of dissidents, out of prison, and if he's guaranteed freedom, and if you arrange a meeting between him and me in a well-known central central, uh, how do you call it, but the city sweet store for cakes, cafeteria in Budapest, a meeting there, then I promise you that I will tell him everything, but not in a court, and he insisted to the end, he was again thrown out of party and so on, so my point is the following ones, I didn't lose my track, but uh, yes, now there is something interesting that you should learn, he was this typical old-style Marxist aesthetic for whom literature was the only this is so tragic, real thing. Like, you know, he has absolutely no sense 
this, the other one, Agnes Scheller, who was his probably mistress and through this assistant when she was young, but now she's a serious philosopher, uh, very old now, of course, she told me that uh, once she tried to seduce him theoretically into painting, so she showed him, the big philosopher, some Picasso reproductions. And look at his reaction was, you know, this ridiculous one of common sense people, that every child could do this, what is this, and so on, you know. So, what Agnes Keller, now what she told me, is something very precise and very tragic, beautiful. She was in Auschwitz, like the serious one, you know it. I saw, she was even discreet. No, she didn't boast it, like, oh, see my numbers there, tattooed, but she was there. And she told me something beautiful. Again, there were three, two types and some acts of people in a really rough concentration camp, which was Auschwitz. You should make a crucial distinction between Auschwitz and Arbeitslager, uh, work camps, like Dachau. In Dachau, you had a chance to survive, more or less, you know. Auschwitz and so on were killing camps. She told me two types. One were survivalists. You just did everything to survive. And even here, that beautiful detail, there were unwritten rules. Like, let's say, sorry, don't take it personally, me and you are there. I go to the toilet and am stupid enough to leave that little piece of bread of mine there on the table. You are allowed to... I'm stupid. I was stupid. You are... But, for example, if I'm eating it, you are not allowed to beat me and... You know what I mean? Like... But nonetheless, with all these minimal rules, there were, uh, again, limits. Rules? It was a cruel survivalist regime. But... Uh, and then there were Muslims, the living dead, you know why, because of European racism. The usual idea, standard at that time of Muslims was that these are people totally, totally resigned to their faith, who just uh, uh, pray and do like that. And when you break down in camp and you just not even want to survive, just vegetate, you behave like that. So the nickname Musulmaner, Muslims, was in use for them. Uh, they were believing that, in the sense of as long as they were, they were still alive, but without this minimum, minimal will even to survive, they just didn't care, you know. And Agamben is right, I checked with some other documentaries who told me that, uh, for example, when American TV, no, sorry, it was not a TV, movie, journalist, you remember, entered some of the camps, from the West also, and when the Dachowicz so on in the day, you get, that's easy, you get all those heaps, thousands of corpses, no? But they were too horrified to shoot Muslims. There are just a couple of movie shots of Muslims, this living dead, mostly in the background, like you have to look, it was too traumatic to put the camera on them. So, uh, but now comes the crucial point, she told me that in every unit barrack there was a myth. First she saw it specific to her unit, but then she told me that she learned, because when you are out on work, little working, you of course talk a little bit with others, that it was 
practically all humans. There was a myth that, not in your barrack, but usually in some nearby house barrack, there is someone who retained his full human dignity, who is not yet a Muslim. Sorry, not even a survivalist, you know, the guy who is still helping others and so on, like, who didn't, but she told me then the truly tragic thing, that as a rule then something crazy happened. On some work detail or whatever out, it happened sooner or later that you met that guy from the nearby barrack. And of course, what happened then is that you usually established that it was a myth, that they are exactly the same sheet as <coughs> survivalists and so on. And, now comes the crucial thing, at that point, people broke down and become Muslims. So the, the tragic beauty of this is that even to be a survivalist, a brutal egotist survivalist, you still need a belief that out there there is someone who is more than you. You know? When you lose that point of reference, you break down completely. And I think this is deeply true even psychologically. I don't believe that a totally cynical egotist position is even possible. I claim even if you look at the filthiest gangster torturers, you will always find some meat. You know, like Oh, I'm really doing it for my kids, for my family, I love this, that. Everyone has a warm heart, you know, which is why I think it's bullshit, it doesn't matter, it's, it's no excuse, as it were, you know. And again, this is a nice example of transposed belief, how it doesn't matter if you believe. What matters for you to retain your sanity is that there should be another about whom you believe that history. We all need a naive other. And today I found this. Now, quarter of an hour ago when I was checking the email about some book, which is even known when I read about it, how we are all superstitious. And it could be an interesting book. It refers to all these daily practices that even if we are cynics, you know, we believe from these most ordinary cases, like for example, you watch football, soccer, whatever, at home, and you shout there, you know, it's, this is a nice example of magical, everyday magical thinking. You do gestures which, in practice, demonstrate that you secretly believe that in this way you can influence the outcome. Although you are alone at home, but you do it and so on and so on, and here, that would be my idea of uh, historicity, different figures of the big other, here maybe Americans have a problem, I will not go too much into it, I notice something which, as far as I know, is specific to the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong, but usually I check it, I often find myself in hotels with more than 13, 14 floors, then you know what I'm talking about. In American hotels always, they skip the 13th floor, no, it's 12th and 14th. But I always ask myself a strange question, whom are they cheating? But doesn't God know, if we say 
If there is an evil, bad luck, there must be some spiritual agency, God or evil demon could have it. But that agency which condemned the third, no? whom you pro but doesn't he know that 14 is really 13? Like, whom, whom are you cheating, you know? This is, very, this is basically very enigmatic for me, you know. As I quote it, I think, no, is it in this book? Yes, the last big fat one. Another nice example, and these are differences in Picada. For example, it happened to me and a friend of mine when Mladen Dolar, when four years ago, I think three or four, we were in Harvard giving a talk. And then I had these rituals. After the talk, we were invited out to dinner and some, with some ten academics who were, we didn't know very well each other, so the guy who organized it said, okay, now, the same boring, I'm still sorry for it, ritual as me yesterday, with you, let's all present ourselves to each other, but in much nastier way. He said, can each of us just briefly state your profession? I mean, where are you employed? If you are, your field of work, this is my level, and then he added something that I find obscene that I would never have done with all my bad best jokes. And then he said, and your sexual orientation. <laughs> like, are you gay? Are you this? Are you that? I mean, we were, me and my friend, we were simply shocked, you know, like, how can you? No, I, <laughs> my automatic idea, but then I remember that you don't make jokes with Americans here. That it was to say something just to provoke them, uh, of course, a lie, but a ridiculous lie to make brutally fun of it. Like, I only can do it with young children, but I must be less than six years, and just some total nonsense like this, you know. But, uh, okay, but then, but then we got it. My friend and me, how it's much more complex. Yes, Americans can do this. But at the same time, if you go to at least North American beaches, Topless is strictly prohibited. You don't do it. While in Europe, even under dark communism all around, somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s, even in ex-Yugoslavia, everywhere, it become a rule. It's not a problem. It's simply not noticed. I know I may be like, in a sexist way, vulgar, the only one who does wear a bra and so on are usually old women who are afraid to show that they don't have beautiful breasts to be vulgar. It's almost a standard. Now something happened here. A friend of us, it's Eric Sandler, my good friend, I can tell you who from Chicago, visited us there, went to a beach with us, and he was so terrorized, you know, all these breasts around him, and he felt personally attacked and so on. And then we tried to develop, but we didn't get a good one. A theory how, you know, it's too easy to blame just the stupid Americans, but how totally, how in what a different way the limit is posited, you know that. In the United States, if nothing happened to me, it's embarrassingly open in the sense of publicly admitting I'm gay, even friends talk to me about their sexual practices, I found it embarrassing, I cannot. But when you come to, for example, on the beach being, uh, being topless, they, they get, uh, uh, even 
here, in, even if you compare, for example, if you go to sauna, sauna, how you call it, no? And look, in Germany, for example, they are bisexual, open. And you don't do orgies there. It's simply considered normal, nothing. But mostly, as far as I know, in the States and elsewhere, it's separated, no? So, again, okay, but I don't want to lose time here. Too much. <laughs> what I want to say is that, uh, let's return to this problem of uh, how, uh, how, again, how, uh, how appearance matters. How, and yes, Benigni, Kelps, uh, life is beautiful. Why do I hate that movie? Because I think it's a hypocritical movie which, the trick of the movie is, it's, as it were, allegorical dimension. It plays with us, the viewers, exactly the same game as within the film. The father, Roberto Benigni, plays with his boy. You know the story, no? Father and son are sent to Auschwitz and there, to, in order to enable the son to survive the horror, father tells him a bullshit story, no? That this is not really a prison, they voluntarily went there. If you survive, that you can, we can leave at any point you want. But you are heroic enough to stay there, at the end you will get the big prize, it's all just a free competition, and so on and so on. No? That's the story. Uh, and what I claim is that the way Auschwitz is presented to us viewers in the film, with all the jokes, funny side, it's basically the same game. It presents us a nice story to be able to endure Auschwitz, but my point is this one. Would you agree or not that the way to make a much better film, even a much more, well, if I use in more neutral way now the term tragic or terrifying, just, you know the film, you know what happens at the end, that's why I hate the movie. At the end you are not supposed to laugh, at the end you cry. You remember when father is shot and then in a voice over the last scene, son at home, he says, only now I can see my father's sacrifice, blah, 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 blah. Uh, this is, I think, where the movie goes wrong. An authentic, desperate movie. Something should have happened, something, nothing obscene in my style, not a big ray, but something very elemental. What if, and it would be even very realistic, what if, just before the father is shot, the son went to this, no, the father, who heroically sacrifices himself for the son, the father went to discover that the son knew it all the time, the reality, that Auschwitz is not a set for a big game, hunger game, or whatever you would call it today, but just a death game, but just that the son was also caring and loving like key father and just pretended to be naive to make it easier for his father, no? Admitted that this would make all situation much more authentically tragic. I don't know how to, how to say it, no? And that's why I hate the movie. That's why I think it's false. And I have a general problem with Roberto Benigni. I like him in his early movies, 
where his simply evil bad-taste jokes like Did you see that was a Jim Jarmusch or what night on earth? Nice. That a taxi driver in Rome, that's my guy. Extremely <laughs> racist taxi. Sorry? Extremely racist taxi driver. Yeah, but, but you cannot exactly. be a racist and, uh, I mean, you cannot be a non-racist and my friend. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, what I want to say is that, uh, uh, but then what I really hate is how then at a certain point, precisely with La Vita e Bella, Benigni, I claim, uh, experienced a need to show, but I'm not just that, I'm, it's just a game, all that, I'm really a good, warm, caring guy like you, that's the end, I claim. This is why he went, his lowest point was then Pinocchio, which is the argument, but not only it totally failed, but even politically it was a scandal, you know why? When the movie was made to get an Oscar, it didn't work, so Benigni made a compromise and went to visit Berlusconi and got Berlusconi's help. Berlusconi ordered his newspapers to write positive reviews, the movie to be shown in, own, in cinema theaters, movie theaters owned by Berlusconi to get it a boost and so on and so on. This, so, you know which movie is for me much better if you saw it? A concentration camp comedy. Because it is also this brutal humor. And you also have a point at the end where you no longer laugh. But what you get there, it's not this melodrama, sentimental tears. You get total despair. Did you see, was it Liliana Cavani or Lina Verpur, I was confused, with Giancarlo Giannini, Pasqualino e Sette Bellecce. It's a wonderful movie of this type of Italian seducing guy, uh, Sicilian, no? who is, again, finds himself in Auschwitz, and the capo is a horrible, fat, blonde, cruel German woman. And he gets the point that the way to survive is to seduce her. And then it has the most disgusting sexual act and so on. All the, but then at the end, when he does survive, but all people around him are killed, Nothing sentimental, you just get total despair, you know, like, he survived but as a nobody. It's much more, much more, I think, uh, a much more authentic, tragic film. Uh, so, okay, let's stop with this and let's go on with Big Other. This is nonetheless only one aspect of the Big Other. I began, I began, at then with this idea of how the big other in Lacan, uh, how Lacan always uh, reformulates, changes his position and so on, I think precisely that again, the big other is an exemplary case, but also an exemplary case of what you cannot simply say at the end he found the true position or what. Somehow you have to maintain all these passages, namely if you look at early Lacan, even the first seminar, seminar one, Freud's technical writings, there the big other is not yet the symbolic order. The big other is simply the other in intersubjectivity, but the authentic other. Lacan's idea is very simple. In everyday life we have this mirror-like communication between small others, like what we imagine to be our imaginary identity, and the task of analysis is 
to break from this non-authentic mirror relationship to my authentic subjectivity talking to the other, Lacan even uses a very traditional metaphysical expression beyond the wall of language, like to reach there, what is behind. That's Lacan's original other, big other. Then, uh, and he even gives very nice examples which are pertinent to the end of this dimension of the other beyond the wall of language. He takes the example of performative statements and promises, you know, like, I promise that I tell the truth, I love you, whatever, but he says, like, the moment we are in language, there is always a doubt. You are telling me this, by why? Do, you know, you never know the other. This is, then, only then, massively, in one year, in uh, second, uh, Lacan's second seminar, seminar number two, then it's a total shift. Big other becomes the big other in the standard structural sense, in the sense of an anonymous symbolic mechanism which really runs the show. Exemplary is here, you must know it, Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Permanent Letter, and Lacan's interpretation of it, which is this classical structuralist interpretation. There is a famous passage in Lacan when he says that the lesson of this Edgar Allan Poe story is that even when we think that we are us, us, uh, uh, acting sorry, freely, these are just imaginary illusions in reality. The big other runs the show and our imaginary free identities, what you freely think you are, are just uh, imaginary illusions. So in this sense then, the goal of psychoanalytic treatment becomes simply to dispel the imaginary illusion and to be able to formulate your structural role. How are you over-determined by a symbolic structure? So again, this is the, let's call it Levi-Strossian other. A kind of objective symbolic structure and as such it's unconscious. You are not even aware of it, but it totally over-determines what you do, the meanings of it, and so on and so on. Then, as you hinted before, <coughs> Then complications began, because at, for like one, two, three years, Lacan was flirting with this radical structuralist position. We are just imaginary puppets, symbolic, anonymous symbolic order is ruling, pulling the strings. Sorry? Of course not. But my point is that Lacan immediately disagreed with himself, you know. Because then uh, Lacan got something else, namely that this structure is necessarily inconsistent, antagonistic, inoperative, failed, and uh, uh, so, uh, or even has a status of semblance, of an illusion, structurally, and everything changes with this. How can we see this? For example, you know, Lacan, one of his big phrases is, there is no other of the other. He simply means that the big other isn't, as it were, 
reflexively caught in itself to guarantee its consistency, its inconsistent, open, symbolic order doesn't have a master or a consistency which controls it. Now again, you should ask yourself the usual question, which is, but who is the idiot who claims that there is the other, an other of the other? Well, Lacan himself, in his third seminar on psychosis, where for Lacan, what he calls the name of the father, the fundamental metaphor which you have to assume to enter symbolic order, is precisely the other of the other, the master signifier, which, which is why uh, later it's absolutely crucial that Lacan denounces father paternal authority as uh, as as uh, as as illusory, as a fake, and so on and so on. So, uh, what I want to say is that, and yes, with this, when objective symbolic structure becomes inconsistent, at, uh, at that point, the other from the beginning re-emerges, but in a way, the other which is this, the otherness of the abyss of subjectivity, but in a much more radical way, even in theological terms, as the neighbor. And as Lacan knows very well, the neighbor in Judeo-Christian tradition, and this is what for Lacan makes it great, the neighbor is not the fellow out there who is like me. No, the neighbor is precisely the the terrifying other, the abyss, I never, you know, the neighbor is the other about whom I never know what he really wants, who remains out there. For example, uh, this is why in a beautiful rereading of Decalogue and so on, Lacan makes this point that you shouldn't be seduced by this appearance of Jewish law saying, love thy neighbor. They are well aware that this is uh, basically impossible, you know, it's an impossible commandment that basically, he goes very nicely in this Lacan, how all the commandments are basically uh, commandments destined to keep the neighbor at the proper distance. You know, like, it's a murderous moment when the neighbor comes too close to you. So again, and even today, I claim, we have the last echo of this, and maybe, you were talking about this before, like, role of big other, blah, 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 maybe, I have my doubts, but maybe this is a possible reading of today's racism, even. Because it's true that the, let's call it, performative, symbolic power of social rules, prohibitions, is in decline, and remember, in Jewish tradition and Christian, the point of these rules is precisely to keep the neighbor at the proper distance. What happens if this rule no longer properly works is that the neighbor comes too close. And then, this is a very simplified, not even explanation, just a description. And then, the point is that then, you feel threatened by the neighbor. And then, you know, because as Miller developed following Lacan already, is how, who is the neighbor? For example, 
for European racist Jews are the neighbors. For Zionists in Israel, Palestinians are obviously the neighbor. The neighbor is this ambiguity of a threat to you, but at the same time some excessive enjoyment which somehow is inaccessible to you and so on. And that type, and uh, if you want to get an idea of neighbor, neighbor is an alien, basically. In what sense? Precisely in sense of radically another species. You cannot ever be, uh, where do you find this nice I go to this in some of my early books. The example is the sacred one from my own family life, my mother. Well, a nice lady, she was a friend with an old, nice Jewish lady. But once something happened which shocked me. This old Jewish lady visited my mother when I was there, and I don't even know who borrowed money from whom. And there were no problems with money. I mean, just one was returning money to each other, nothing. But then this Jewish lady left, and my mother told me, I love this old lady. But nonetheless, did you notice with what strange intensity she was counting the money? You know, all the anti-Semitism was here, you know, like, Jews, my God, it was too much intensity there, whatever, no? And my theory is that this is how our everyday racism today often functions, you know? You don't, we are officially all liberals, but there is usually a but, like, I've often spoke with my friends in Paris who told me we love Algerians and Arabs, but just the music is done comes uh, just just they smell bad. One version is they smell bad. They don't wash themselves enough. Their music is too loud. This is also a standard in the United States. You know, I love blacks, but the boomboxes, you know, <laughs> the music they play. All another one is their food doesn't smell nice. You know, there is this tiny feature which kind of. Uh, you experience as intruding. And I claim that the logic here is exactly the same as that in I Love Them. Do you know those horror movies, The Model, one of them, the best known is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where, you know, strangers are among us, and that's always the catch. They look and act like us, but there is then always a tiny feature which allows you to recognize them. A strange glitz color in their eyes, or one of the popular things is they have usually too much skin here, like between fingers, or the way their ears are turned, whatever. The point is almost like us, but just a tiny detail which makes them totally other. This is the neighbor for Lacan. This other who is close to you but close to you in, uh, once in one of my books, I did a theory of a neighbor apropos train stations, if you know Germany, in Hamburg. In Hamburg, you have three main train stations. One is the central one, then another one I forgot, another one was, it was basically a class distinction. It's very irrational, because in Hamburg you have like four, five hundred yards from each other, two big train stations. Okay, it was explained to me, one was for ordinary people, the other was for emperor, rich people visiting Frankfurt. But then mysteriously, there is another one, three, four miles, five kilometers north, in a 
part of the city suburb called Altona, Hamburg Altona. And you know, there is a big mystery about etymology of this name, Altona. And although it sounds like a joke, most linguists agree that Altona comes from all too, nay, all too close. Why? Because this was hundreds of years ago the seat of a Danish minority, you know, Hamburg is up to them. And the idea is, even if they are way out there, they are always too close, you know. It's the same mystique as for the Nazis, apropos Jews, you know. The more you kill them, the more too many of them remain. Yes? The proximity space is precisely where fantasy resides, right? Yeah, yeah. So then, I know you're opposed to applied ethics and all of, like, any kind of... No, but... but my, my point would be this notion of Lacanian traversing a fantasy, yeah. because neighbor is in occupying the space of the real, mm -hmm. and is, you know, the Freudian das Ding. Yeah. So is your proposal one where, whereby we actually encourage some kind of authentic submersion into the realness of the other? Or how do you keep at bay? Because some proximity is... Is necessary. No, I, I want, no, 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 I definitely, I think that first, the first thing to admit is I'm not preaching paradise. I'm not preaching that uh, this is not Lacanian, this is naive humanism, that, oh, in an authentic society, we are all just open to each other and so on. But here I am for historicity. Still, I find it so fascinating how much when the space, the most elementary spatial coordinates, when do you feel overwhelmed by the other? Are, I hate this word, but I will use it, culturally determined. Here, you can draw a nice opposition between Japan and United States. For me, a symbol of United States, and I like the country, is, did you see the movie, but I don't like Kubrick, but nonetheless, it's interesting movie, uh, Shining. That's United States. One family, three of them in a mega big hotel, it's still crowded. They start On the other hand, it is true. I was fascinated how in Japan, okay, there is a big theoretical debate, are Japanese human, are aliens? No, but I love them. Why? Because, you know, they are so absurdly crowded. At least they were when I was there. The subway cars in, no? But magically, you learn how, I mean, you can be literally squeezed by others and somehow you don't feel your privacy invaded. Which is why, don't be afraid, I find prostitution disgusting, I never did it, I cannot even imagine doing it. But nonetheless, what I mentioned to some of you privately, I think, the most interesting form of not even full prostitution that I heard about and I saw some photos, they are not pornographic, don't be afraid, is the Japanese one. You know what they do? It's so crazy. Uh, you have, it's not even a prostitution place, they park somewhere a subway car. And then, you know what is the dream of ordinary shy people? That it's nice to be in a very crowded train, so that then if there are some Girls there, you can in an unnoticed way touch them, squeeze their asses, whatever you want. So you pay for this. You go, 20 men, all go into a car with 30 women, and it's all crowded. Then they put the sounds as if shaking it, as if the train is moving, and you just squeeze them and can't nobody. 
The girls are paid not to know this sheet, you can just squeeze them, touch them, and so on. It's so, it's vulgar, but so gently absurd, you know, that I, I almost like it. There is something, you know why I like it? Because I was told it's strictly not a foreplay. It's not that then, you know, you like especially a girl, you give them a hint, and they have rooms ready there. There are no rooms ready there. This is all. In a way, I must say I like it. But again, it's shocking to what and uh, and I mentioned Simon because it's also, I think, a wonderful example of neighbor. Stephen King, the writer himself, uh, was right basically, I think, when he he was opposed to the film. He said it's not a bad film, but there is a big mistake, and he is right. The name of this mistake is Jack Nicholson. Why? He said that the whole point of my novel. It's a very, in the sense of the second Lacan, the structure is one, that the evil is purely structural there. The house, the place is evil. So his entire point is that you take an ordinary, friendly guy, and because of the house, the place, he gets slowly crazy and stop, uh, and slowly, slowly, and at the end starts killing, you know. But he said, the moment Jack Nicholson, with his smile, <laughs> enters, you know, you know who is he, a man. No, no need for a gradual change there, you know. I think, so my point is that the way uh, Stephen King, ho, ho, authentically meant it, you know, uh, he was right, uh, uh, that this is neighbor. You know, when you experience a neighbor, didn't it happen to you? Unfortunately, it did happen to me. Sometimes in good sense, mostly in the bad sense. You know that you are with a friend, someone whom you knew for decades. You think, you know, and then all of a sudden, it's a terrifying moment. The guy does something, usually unfortunately, is something vulgar, a brutal, cruel remark or what, which totally shatters you. My God, is this the guy whom I thought I knew? How could he have blah, blah? At that point, the other becomes the neighbor. That's the name. And no, Lacan no, no, is... Sorry, yes, yeah, So this is, I mean, like you talk about in that uh, essay on Love Thy Neighbor, Yeah, yeah. In, in, in lots of places. And I'm always struck by... See, this was a criticism, gentle, between the lines, brain change, always, I'm always struck by the, the way that these eruptions are the real in the neighbor. Yeah. They're always really... Um, there's always a, a sort of a, a slippage between the, their, their being horrifying as eruptions of the real and their being horrifying as things that keep getting encoded as horrifying. So... Could you be more precise? Yeah, I don't yeah, want yeah, to miss yeah. the point. Yeah. So the, the ugliness of the real when it erupts, there's a slippage between its ugliness and its structural character as real erupting. And yeah, but don't you think that this and, ugliness and, and, is always partially structural? Right, right. And, and there... Is, yes, uh, yes, can yes, I give yes, you a proof? Yes, sorry. Yes, yes, can yes. I give you a proof? And, and then I will give you back the word. I'm sorry. An elementary proof which I also use many times, but it's so vulgar that I like it. The empirical proof, how we are not talking about, about here about horror, but more about simple disgust. Look, I warn you, it is disgusting, but very innocent. Imagine you all the time swallow your saliva. No problem. 
Okay, do something. Take an empty glass and spit a lot of your saliva into it. The moment it's out, it becomes disgusting. Approve. Try to drink it again. I cannot. It's totally. But you see how it's purely structural. Rational, you know, my God. Seconds ago it was in my mouth, I didn't have any problems. But the moment it's out, you know. So I think this is pretty, pretty radical. Even some theorists developed disgust strictly along the lines of the Freudian Unheimlich. As disgust is not, oh my God, alien, so foreign. No. Disgust is always something from inside you which is externalized. You know, it's never simply outside. Radical otherness, incommensurability and so on, is never disgusting. Mm -hmm. Even when we have animals, and I'm here uh, a scared guy, a coward, absolutely. I mean, if you want me to run away like crazy, you just show me not even a snake, a big turtle and octopus, <laughs> whatever. I mean, I mean, like, I would prefer probably to die than to eat a lobster or something like this. These are horrors for me. Basically, I hate life as such. That's why I sympathize with uh, Kirsten Dunst in Von Trier's Metal you know, when she said, I know that the Earth is the only place in the universe where there is life, and when the Melancholia planet will hit us, it will be... Good point, girl. <laughs> no, but here, okay, go on, sorry. Yes, so, it, it, it often feels to me that the way that you articulate that, you're sort of continuing to react against it. That is to say, so you're bringing, you're bringing, you're marking, say, the spit in the in the class, yeah. uh, and the way that you're marking it is maintaining then the order of your body as something that is troubling. Oh, I'm, I want to maintain that, and, and I and I kind of find myself, you know, repeatedly when I, when I'm yeah, yeah. in these places where I'm fully persuaded by what you're saying structurally. I, I'm distressed by, by what feels like an enactment of the desire to maintain actually the structure that's kept that particular thing disgusting. So very well, I'm disgusted, yes. Why, why not then, you know, sort of proceed in a way that takes that moment of, of putting my spit in my glasses, a vental, whatever, you know, as, as something that sort of induces uh, in the situation a, a chance to reconfigure my notion of where my body is. And so I, I'm, which is yeah, obviously the other, the other possible I reaction. Think so this more of a God I see your reaction to the but thing. I think, yes, the, yeah. maybe. I think we can play a little bit with elements and so on. It, it's certain that it's, again, much of this is at the level of content, again, culturally overdetermined. Like I saw recently, although I hate them, they are so patronizing. One of those, uh, you know, CNN or History Channel or whatever, National Geographic documentaries about what people are eating in the world. And where something were too much for me, like somewhere in African jungle, there they have big spiders. By big, I mean big, like not this, but like this, no? And children there, and they are horrible, you know, with hair, black, and so on. And you see children grabbing them and directly biting them and eating them. So yes, you can do things here. But I claim that uh, this is what Lacan even means by the big other is inconsistent and so on, that gap remains. 
The utopia is that you will simply, as it were, totally open yourself to reality. You know when I find even limits here? When I was in Korea three weeks ago, I had some private debates with some Buddhists, very interesting ones. And I tried to catch them, it was a little bit naive, you know. But at the end, at some point, we did agree. I tried evil as I am. I always come there to provoke people, no. Didn't I tell you already, maybe you know the story, it's not a joke. What happened to me after I made those, this morning I repeated them, uh, Gandhi remarks in India. After I, it's not a joke. After I returned to Slovenia, a friend of mine, his wife, works at Slovene Foreign Ministry. He told me that two weeks after my visit, there comes an official, how do you call it, the PESH, official diplomatic letter from Indian Foreign Ministry to Slovene Foreign Ministry saying that your citizen Slavoj Žižek said in India publicly that uh, Mahatma Gandhi is no better, even worse than Hitler, which I of course didn't say, but okay. And they said that we want to know is this his personal opinion, it is now the opinion of Slovene government. <laughs> and I told them to write back, it's not yet the Slovenian official opinion, but we are thinking about it. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> no, but seriously, so... Uh, well, seriously, can you, you, your theory of the subject perhaps, can you yeah. maintain the other qua neighbor without it costing subjective existence? What do you mean by accosting uh, limit of my uh, Without the subject being the subject of the unconscious or the hysteric subject. Because I thought that was a little bit of your project in trying to distinguish Hegelian repetition yeah. from... That's the, a big question. And asked, I wanted, yeah, okay. Sorry, please go to the end. Sorry, I interrupted. Oh, so, no, I don't mean to go to the end. But you asked sorry. the question, you know, what, could Hegel think subject of the unconscious? But there's a sense in which he didn't need to because Hegel might have had a theory of a subject that existed. But I'm asking what is it saying for, for you... And if you think that maybe that's even where we can't if it didn't, it, the, the question began to hinge not on the status of the big other, but maintaining a subject that can exist. What do you mean by exist? I I'm not trying to play. This is absolutely crucial. Maintain any me. other form of subjectivity that is not hysteria or subjectivity. Yeah, I see. So, but that is authentic. That is true. First, okay, I will give you a short answer, then you can counterattack. Uh, the answer is naively yes. At this level, yes. I don't think that uh, we are, as it were, a priori, constitutionally, whatever you want, uh, condemned to live in a lie. This is the position of some Lacanians. Unfortunately, even Jacqueline Miller approaches this position now. The position is, as already, I think, at a different political level indicated here, that it is, as it were, in our, well, not natural nature, but structural a priori of human universe, that you have to live in an illusion and so on, and that, as Miller put it somewhere, the real, the authentic encounter is just a momentary event, you know, like, oh, you have, like, this is Antigone. That's why I claim Lacan immediately dropped his reading of Antigone. There, for Lacan, the authentic encounter is Antigone entering that space of what Lacan calls their arte, the space between uh, the living dead, neither life nor death, authentic, let's call it maybe domain of the real. You can enter it briefly, but you cannot persist there. Like, but I, I, tend, I think this solution is too easy. Well, yeah, that's too easy, because what, what does that mean? 
Well, first, what's at stake is truth doesn't have to have the structure of fiction. And this is the structure of? The structure of fiction. Truth but, does. Oh. Again, 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 again. Yeah, and that's uh, a question that Deleuze asked in his early, early work. Yeah. He was always asking, difference does not have to go as far mm -hmm. as contradiction identity. It sounds like you could. And then what would also be at stake in the, uh, the subjectivity proper as I truth and speaking, the Freudian I truth and speaking. So there's actually a lot. You can't just say yes. Uh, no, I'm not saying just yes, because you pay a mega price for this yes, I know. The price would be this one. Now, I can just... Not because you are stupid, but because we don't have time. I can just hit the direction. Uh, the first answer, crucial by Lacan, would be, and my God, I don't want to go too deep into it, maybe we can talk later, because I'm afraid that we are getting into this open question of Lacanian theology, you know where we will be boring, but it's absolutely crucial that, and not all readers, just some readers, the best, notice this. How? Somewhere from, I would say, seminar 11, around there later, Lacan devalues truth. Truth is no longer the authentic thing. Lacan, uh, Lacan till seminar 11, seven, eight still, anxiety still, has this idea of opposing knowledge and truth as authentic and non-authentic. It's incidentally a very metaphysical, traditional European philosophical attitude. The idea being that in knowledge you are not subjectively engaged. Knowledge is non-authentic. Knowledge is, I don't know, I can develop a theory of torturing and so on, it's objectively true, it doesn't engage me, but truth is subjectively engaged knowledge. Knowledge with, as it were, it's a subjective practice knowledge with an immanent ethical dimension, whatever. So, why is this important? Because this is the whole problem of Lacan at that stage of efficiency of psychoanalytic treatment. His idea is that, of course, if you are a bad patient in the sense of not really engaged, you are ready to admit it, like, oh, you are saying this dream means that I want to fuck my mother. Okay, who cares? So why not? You know, you admit it as knowledge, but you don't really assume it. It's not truth. And Lacan constantly throughout the 50s and the very beginning of 60s uh, resuscitates this very traditional philosophical topic of authentic, engaged truth versus objective, neutral, just objective scientific knowledge. Then something weird comes precisely when notions of drive, real and so on enter truth, because truth for Lacan is a category of the symbolic, the symbolic fiction. Truth is no longer the authentic dimension. No, I, I, and I agree here with Lacan, we should keep the word authentic, but it's either an anxiety or real or whatever, it's no longer truth. So you would go that way towards Lacan, because Badu goes quite the other way. With well, you know, there is a wonderful joke in, uh, I know, in Some Like It Hot, you know, when you remember in the final scene when in Miami Hall gangsters meet mobsters, you know, some like it's called Billy Wilder, the mega comedy. 
they are preparing a plot against that, Joe Gamashi or whatever, the bad guy, and you know, the way they want to kill him is a big birthday cake and the man with a gun. And the big mobster who is organized the killing says to him, uh, Joe, we all love you, here is the, for your birthday the cake. No? And Joe, the guy says, but wait a minute, you are wrong, my birthday is six months away. And the big boss says, well, what is six months among good friends, and so on and so on. So you got my point. Well, okay, but you is here radically in an opposite position, but what is a small opposite position? <laughs> friends, no? Ah, this, uh, uh, but there is a very serious problem here. Yes, and I'm not here far from simply criticizing but you. I'm looking for my way here. What I would say is just put this Badiou's statement in context, because of course, to put it bluntly, for Badiou, knowledge is the category of being. You know things the way they are. Truth is the category of engaged subjectivity. Ah. Here we approach the problem of the status of subject. My simple, I develop it again and again. <coughs> The problem with Badiou is that for me something is, is missing. You have this hedonist, as he calls it, human animal, uh, uh, human individual. And then you have subject in the sense of fidelity to the event and so on. I claim that within this logical space there simply is no place for the Freudian subject. Freudian subject where you have categories like drive, anxiety. I do know that Badiou has wonderful theories about anxiety. But with drive, death drive, it gets complicated. Sometimes he of, of, almost becomes a kind of a moralist, you know, claiming this morbid death drive, late capitalist, whatever. What I claim is that uh, the lesson of psychoanalysis is very radical here. My point is here a much more crazy one. Maybe some of you know it, and I wonder if you would agree. Usually, Badiou is approached with, uh, and you can test this next week, the guy will come here. And I'm very glad to meet him, because we will be doing some communist plotting about organizing the next conference on communism and so on. Uh, usually he's accused of kind of a proto-idealist dualism. We have the ordinary being, order of being, reality, and then out of nowhere event comes, isn't this a kind of a half-concealed, disavowed theology? My reproach is exactly the opposite one. If there is a lesson of Freud, it's not, Freud is not a brutal biological reductionist. The point of Freud is not all higher human activities can be reduced to vulgar sex, desire to murder, whatever. It's exactly the opposite one. The problem I have with Badiou is not there is no event. Every event, if you look at it closely, is conditioned through the order of being. Even Badiou admits this. I once caught him, I think, with not totally, but a little bit, his pants down. Namely, when he writes somewhere, of course, we are not idealists, of course, truth is just 
a specific detour within the order of being, or something like that. Right? Crucial how he's afraid to be. No, no, no. I'm a, you know, I would be a good secret policeman. You know, I, you know, people say things. I have a black book. I know them. You just keep them. You never know how they will be used. You know, situation. I don't know. But just another thing. Speaking about just a small detour. Then I come back to you. Speaking about death penalty and killing. You know that. Let me give you an existential confession. There is a person, of a person, who didn't kill anyone. And I would be ready to kill him if I, if it would be able to do it with impunity at any moment. And precisely when I was in Argentina, in Brazil, all the time I heard about, namely, when they had military dictatorship and they, they were torturing people, Probably it's in all countries. I'm not fixed on Latin America. It's there only that I know about it. They told me that always there were doctors. And these doctors were totally clean. They didn't do any torturing. Just the police called them and they made an examination of the patient and said, you can torture him in this way if you want. Do you want him to die or not? That stopped there. They, they were clean. They just did objective medical exam and gave advice is how to. I find this even in a way ethically worse than torture. Because you know you think, oh but I just said my opinion. I didn't do anything. If I were to be dining with a person like that and I would have some good poison, I would without any problem, if you ask me, put it in. I find this is for me uh, ethically much more disgusting thing, you know. When you are doing horrible things, but in this innocent way, so what did I do, and so on, and so on. But, sorry, let's go back to here. So, my problem with Badiou is the following one. That the lesson of psychoanalysis is not, there is no event, all events can be reduced down, blah, but the opposite. There is no human animal. That is to say, if death drive means something, it means that the way Badiou portrays describes human animal, an animal just bent towards uh, uh, service of good, utilitarian pleasure, hedonism, pursuit of happiness. Are, it's not, they don't exist. The lesson of psychoanalysis is anti-American constitution. It's no pursuit of happiness. We are doing all possible to sabotage our happiness. We are beyond the pleasure principle, always. So what I'm saying is that what Badiou describes as this, the bad, not even subject, individual, when he says the, the subject, the individual of what he calls democratic materialism, just pleasures, blah, blah, blah. I claim in a very Marxist, historicist way that such an individual is a product of a very specific late capitalist conditions, there is nothing primitive, natural about it. Or, to give you another example, here I get a conflict with you. Uh, I think this is why the moralistic criticism of capitalism, in the sense of, you know, too much like, this is why Catholic Church, you know what is Catholic Church, that well-known organization of financial speculators and pedophiliacs, you know, and so on, no? <laughs> okay. Uh, their reaction to 2008 meltdown was, no, this is not a crisis of capitalism, 
this is a crisis of morality and so on. You know? No, it's totally misleading to talk about greed and so on, blah, blah, blah. So what I want to say is this. I claim that insofar as I agree with but you and he with me, ever, let's say that the main danger, the root of it all is this crazy capitalist drive to profit and so on. But this is not the logic of human animal. This is a kind of perverted radical fidelity to even, I'm tempted to say, a perverted, a perverted event. A typical radical capitalist is not a hedonist. He is ready to ruin his life, everything, just that, sorry. Isn't that also at the core of why you say that communism is already at work within capitalism? That's who you differ with that view with respect to the subjective element. No, no, but nonetheless, things appear more refined because, you know, I'm nonetheless not hard and negri. Although, to annoy negri, I call them hard and soft, you know. <laughs> I cannot resist it, sorry. You know, even my son knows these jokes. You know, my son, the small one, the evil one, you know. He told me this story, did you know it? He told it's like, you know how did, uh, how did uh, Bill Gates get the name Microsoft? You must know it. It's wonderful, total vulgarity. When he was a student, he was a chick, he was so ugly. No women was ready to make love to him, so he went to a prostitute, and after doing it, the prostitute told him, yours is so micro and soft, you know. Sorry, but, sorry, what were you saying your second attack about... Uh, no, it wasn't an attack, but okay, I thought you were yeah. actually getting right to the point where you said something very interesting, and it's major where you differ from Badu, is that you have said that communism is already at work within capitalism. No, 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 I, did I, can you show it to me? Because nonetheless, this is the position in its radical of hard and soft guy, of hard and negative. They even go totally crazy here. They think that precisely this digital, virtual, purely speculative, late uh, capitalism is practically already there. Oh, we just have to change the form. I confuse maybe their position. Yeah, 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 yeah. And no, I definitely, and I, 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 you know what's so tragic is that they even go to the end here. Like, the most tragic experience I have with Negris, I saw one interview with him in Mestre, Venezia Mestre, you know, the brother town just on land, the double town of, uh, of Venice, no? They, there, he made an interview walking in front of a factory where workers were protesting, gathered because they lost their job factory. And he told to the journalist, you see, they are dead, they don't even know it. You see, they are lost. But what with sympathy? He said, that's the old working class movement, that's not communism, we should just forget about them. And then he openly said something pretty terrifying that a modern speculative Wall Street capitalist is much closer to communism than those workers and so on and so on. I, I don't, because you know, at the end, you know what, what Negri did. This was a little bit much for me. When there was one of the last trials, no, not the last one, two years ago, when there was one of the trials against Berlusconi, Negri expressed public support for Berlusconi, who is, Negri says, like him, Negri, a victim of bourgeois justice, and so on. So no, I don't buy this story. But sorry, nonetheless, uh, uh, to finish, uh, but, oh my God, uh, you are, uh, I hate you. You know why? Because you are not stupid enough. Like, you are asking to root questions, you know. 
<laughs> because there are so many things to say here, I don't know even... Okay, let's stop this because one way I would like to answer you, but maybe I should, allow me three minutes of improvisation and then you... is to, to give you a wonderful example where nonetheless maybe there are utopian moments in today's capitalism. I will tell you, I already saw it a couple of times, but it's not yet published, so I can tell you to this story. There is a book called, I forgot the name of the guy, the very strange title, Drive. And it's a book of some economic psychologist, which is very naive, but in a way wonderful. He reports on a series of experiments done by some American social psychologists. They wanted to test the relationship between performativity, not in linguistic sense, but simply performance, sorry, how well you do your job, and financial reimbursement. Of course, the standard starting hypothesis was the better you are paid, the better you will do it. But then they arrived at something very weird. The result was this only holds for stupid work where you are not even minimally engaged. The moment work becomes a real challenge, intellectual challenge or ethical challenge that you help people, they discovered something wonderful, communist I would say, that uh, if you are paid little, of course if you starve you don't do it, but then very soon, just to get enough to survive, modestly, you do what you can do and now comes a miracle. It's not only that if you are paid more, you don't do it better. It's your, no, if you are paid more, you do it worse. It's as if, you know, money then acquires too much of a role and you focus on money and it ruins it. So it's a very strange result empirically demonstrating how with a certain work, precisely to use the standard Marxist term, the non-alienated work. Money can be even counterproductive, in the sense that if you get paid too much, you will do your work worse. And now comes the beautiful, a little bit naturalizing, naive move. Then, they were honest historicists, they said, but what if we are making a mistake here, universalizing too fast? What if this has something specific to do with this shitty American, yuppie, benevolent, charity, capitalism. So let's test it all around. They went to a very poor African country, Mali, I don't know which one. They went to some Indian poor villages and so on. And all around China, the result was always the same. And isn't this beautiful? It, I, uh, okay, let's, I mean, it's nonsense to say this proves communism. But it does demonstrate at least something, that this idea that we are egotist machines, for whom it's automatic that you really just care about money, blah, blah, is simply not true. That is to say that the standard anti-communist reproach, oh, you are utopians, people just care about competition, money, it's empirically not true. Our nature is not capitalism. For Sorry? For intellectual Ah, no, 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 they went into this. They said the point is not so much intellectual work, but it's simply subjective engagement. 
Like they made the same example in some stupid, sorry, stupid in my racist way, I love it, Indian village where there were fishers. And they, were, they paid the people to build a boat. Again, if it was just a boring serial work, okay, you pay me better, I do it better. But when it was some boat which was a sacred object, whatever, satisfied, blah, 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 it, money became counterproductive, even if, although it was a, uh, although it was, although it was a uh, uh, heavy work and so on, and still, uh, still, again, I'm not naive, I'm not saying I can prove communism, I'm just saying that things are not as simple as that. So again, back to Badiou, I think, I am for his theory of human-animal end of event. You know where we disagree? We agree, we had long conversations, we and Alain, about this. We both agree that you cannot directly have an event, that in order to, as it were, prepare an event, what but you calls eventual site, the site of potential event, you have to have terror and anxiety there. No? Yeah. But then sometimes where we disagree is that for but you for me he goes a little bit too fast. The eventual enthusiasm is always there and anxiety is just like retroactive shadow of the event. You know, anxiety is a sign that the situation is open, event is possible. I'm more of a pessimist. I think that anxiety can always have the garden is our basic attitude, as it were, human. Yeah. And then you can escape anxiety either by becoming human animal, but that's crucial for me. Human animal is secondary, it's already an escape. It's to cover up anxiety or you unite anxiety with eventual enthusiasm. But no, no, Alain agrees with this, that there is no event without anxiety. Event without anxiety is not really an event, uh, and so on and so on. But you also wanted to say yeah, something. I, I, in less than nothing, the chapter we're talking about now, I thought your best critique of the event was this notion of the faithful subjects is merely based on their gaze, right? Like towards the object of the event. Yeah. So you propose two additional subjective figures, which he and I wanted to Which one? Because nonetheless, do you know like that? Like, for example, the, the, the um, ego, like, in the event of Freud, the ego psychologist would constitute a completely new... Ah, no, 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 no. The ignorant. I know, I know. No, no, but ah, let's be precise here. Nonetheless, let's be honest. We will shoot but you, but in an honest style in Australia. <laughs> no, quite seriously. Don't you know that? No, no, no. He's very honest. I know that you mean it. He's a genius. <laughs> and he developed this. You know that... Again, another example of like Lacan, you know that, but you radically changed his position here. In being an event, lettre et l'événement, his idea is still that event includes its nomination, which means an event is an event only for those who recognize themselves as subjects of this event. His example, the French Revolution, is an event if you are engaged, if right. it's your story. But as he says, for historians like François Furet or bourgeois liberals, conservatives, it's simply not an event. 
It's just an eccentric twist, pathology of friends. You know this big uh, liberal historian sport where they try to prove how you can do it in a much more efficient way, the British way, the, the stupid French, just that, in other words, the French Revolution is not the normal way, but the pathological exception with no meaning and so on. That's his position there. In a beautiful way, in Lettre Evelemon and in the book that he is doing now, Limanon's de Verite, Im Immanence of Truth, he will develop this even further. He nonetheless accepted that an event determines the entire field, the situation with regard to which it is an event. In other words, the moment or his better examples maybe, the moment you have a French Revolution, if you are part of our society, you cannot act as if it didn't happen. If you do, it's already a disavowal of the event, you know. It's the same as, and he uses this example, which is a nice one, I quote it from Adorno. You know that this is why Schoenberg, atonal music, was an event. Of course, you can go on writing in the old way, like guys whom I wouldn't have any problem shooting Rachmaninov and name them, no? But uh, it's a fake. It lost its innocence. You know, so in other words, an event determines the entire field. Even if you ignore it, if you react... And is it precisely because of anxiety is universal? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly, yes. So here, I think, I'm not trying to play the game of I'm the bright guy, but, but what, where does he um, respond to the death drive accusation that you impose upon him, at least in writing? Because I like ignores to, it, he ignores it. The, the citations it. that you put in the yeah. book don't feel like they're well argued from his side against you. Yeah, but that's a good point. All I can tell you is maybe you can annoy him a little bit here. Then. <laughs> Whenever I, but I don't accuse him for this, you know, because we philosophers often do this. My God, these are. Now I'm not kidding, this are, my God, we are dying for it. We are thinking of difficult questions and you cannot all the time be at the level, you know. Uh, his answers were, but again, it's not irony what I will tell you now. It's not, his, whenever I tried to corner him, his answer was usually, this is crucial slavery, but sorry, now I have to pick up my son, you know, it was, <laughs> sorry, it was level, you know. But it is true that he is still, and that's why I admire him, my God, he is now in his mid-late 70s. And it's a tragic predicament, you know. He thought my life work is done with, uh, with, uh, what is it? with uh, logic of the world. So he was really thinking of doing just the additional funny stuff. Like, it's not a joke. Do you know the story? I'm telling it to everyone. <laughs> because I love Alain. And I told him, the only true test of love is that I'm telling around dirty things about you without feeling guilty. Because I know we love each other. You know that he was dreaming two, three years ago of doing a movie on, uh, on, 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 on so, uh, life of Plato. But you know my joke, which is not a joke. You know who was supposed to play Plato? Uh, Brad Pitt. <laughs> uh, because that movie about the death of Jesse James or what, oh, yeah. Alain liked that movie and said, I want him. Then she wanted a wife for Plato. He said, Why only Socrates has a wife who was beating him, Xantipa, uh, Penelope Cruz? And then comes the wonderful moment. 
we debated long who should be the young Socrates, who is for Alain the bad guy. You know who? I already mentioned him here. Tom Cruise from Magnolia. That's <laughs> <laughs> he is the young evil Socrates. And then I asked him a question, but what about you, your role? And he immediately answered me very naively. He wants to be the old wise Parmenides who comes and teaches boys. And I love him for this. You know, I thought we are kidding. But then at some point I noticed he really is dreaming about this. But there is something beautiful in it. This is, don't misunderstand me, this is not at all meant as making fun of him. I think that in today's cynical times it's wonderful if you are still able to to have this uh, naivety or whatever, you know. You know what, life is shit, it's running so much. I, I will keep my promise. I already spoke with Wolfgang. The days, if you want, but it's up to you. If you will want some more debates. The days that I am still here, till Monday 13th, if you will have some free time either, like, after lunch, three to four, or so that you will not be too tired, even if all of you don't come, we can do some two, three additional meetings. I again feel guilty today, but okay, I think this is important. So tomorrow, let's do it like this. I will try to do, not in this Lacanian theological terms, but in a very basic way to go to the end with this problem of big other, and especially I will try to answer, my God, you look such a nice girl, but they are the worst, but then it's an easy question, you know. You are like those figures you have in these horror movies of, mommy, can I have some Swedish night girls? And at the end of the movie you discover they are the serial killer. <laughs> you are the intellectual counterpoint. <laughs> but I agree with you, I hate nice girls who are just nice girls. For example, did you see Kislovsky's The Double Life of Veronique? That beautiful actress, Irene Jacob. But then I met someone who knew her. And he told me, she is like that. Could never even kick a dog, a beautiful girl. I said, thanks, one point even to hear about her. I mean, a woman must be evil at some level, otherwise it's nothing. Okay, thanks very much, and so again, I promise you tomorrow, at least we finish first this, uh, we finish this big other, and it's crucial that, because, you know why, because Lacan was able to think subjectivity only when the big other became inconsistent. That's the absolutely crucial link. The, the there is a subject insofar as the symbolic structure is inconsistent, the subject of the signifier. Before that, when Lacan didn't accept, still spoke about this big other fool, subject was just imaginary illusion and so on and so on. No, no, no this is crucial to go into this. I will not repeat myself, don't be afraid from the book. In the book, the interesting chapter here is, if you have the big fat book, less than nothing, the chapter on Heidegger, where I go into why Lacan is not a Heideggerian. That is to say, why knowing Heidegger very well, why Lacan kept the term subject? Why, you know, he, di he didn't follow Heidegger in denouncing subject as modern subjectivity, nihilism, and so on. Why did Lacan keep 
And not only did he keep it, he went even to the end. This is so wonderful that in his maybe crucial seminar, I think it's Logique du Fantasme, maybe I'm wrong, uh, he even at the end fully rehabilitated the Cartesian subject as the subject of psychoanalysis. None of this bullshit Cartesian subject is rational, but subject of the unconscious is some Levin's philosophy, philosophy of life, tool. no, no. Cartesian cogito is the subject of psychoanalysis for late Macron. I think this is absolutely, uh, absolutely crucial. But again, we can debate, uh, you know what's the big difference between Lacan and Badiou and then? For Alain, subjectivity is rare. Happens here and there, and for him, the mistake of me, Lacan, not in that order. <laughs> for, okay, from down to up, me, Lacan, Descartes, is to universalize the subject. For, but you, we are human animals, and then just from time to time, rarely the miracle happens subjectivity. No? So let's do, let's do some of these. We can then relate it even to poetry, because I want to uh, do some things about event, event of sense. I read now some interesting stuff, although the lace already wrote a lot of it about that. Japanese bullshit, bullshit, I love it. Poetry, haiku, you know. The structure, no, it's very ingenious thing. The structure is very, very... Because I like this in Argentina. You have a wonderful poet. You know whom I like? How you call that? It's also a Slavic name. Pizarnik, Pizarnik. Pizarnik. Yeah, yeah, she is a really good one. The one that I hate, unfortunately, is... Uh, she's uh, Pablo Neruda. Kind of a sex long poems, bombastic and so on. What I like about Kizarnik is precise, short, you know. She's the one. Yeah. Like my favorite writer of Argentina is Sire. How do you call him? Jose Sire. Yeah, yeah. He's the one. I think that the tragedy of Argentina is that they were too overshadowed by that shitty magical realism, you know. <laughs> That's a big tragedy. It took all, it occupied all, all the field, no, of Latino America. All now admire all that uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez stuff. No, 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 I think it's a, you know, it's a little bit like in Sweden, where Bergman is great, but it's a catastrophe at the same time, you know. Bergman singularly almost ruined Swedish cinema, I think. How can you compete, compete with, no? Okay, so, see you again tomorrow.